Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Caitlin Rivers, a senior scholar at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Rivers previously worked at the Army Public Health Center, where she was program manager of the Acute Respiratory Disease Program. In our discussion, she speaks about the coronavirus response strategy of trying to flatten the curve. Let's listen. Thank you, Dr. Rivers, for joining me today. Can you tell me what people mean when they say flatten the curve or hashtag flatten the curve? What are they talking about? They are talking about extending the time over which people get sick in order to make sure that our healthcare capacity is able to accommodate everybody who needs care. So if we think we are on a track to have 100 cases, just to give a little thought experiment, our first priority in public health is going to see it be to see if we can reduce that total number. So can we get it down to 90 people sick or 80 or 50? Our second priority, though, is to expand, extend that over time. So we would rather have 100 people be sick over five weeks than we would have them be sick all at once. Because if they get sick all at once, there's a risk our healthcare system won't be able to accommodate them all. And so how do we go about flattening the curve? The best thing we can do is to take personal measures to reduce our risk of getting infected. That looks like hand hygiene, which means washing your hands. And I like to say that good times to wash your hands are when you come in from outside, like when you arrive at home or at work, after you touch high-touch surfaces, like maybe the, uh, the handle at the grocery store or you know the metro, before you spend time with someone who's very old or very young, before you eat. Those are all great points for hand hygiene. It also means staying home a little more often. So instead of going out into the community, going to a bar or a restaurant or a parade, uh, now would be a good time to skip those activities. And just in general, find opportunities to keep your distance from people and reduce those um, those times when you could come in contact with someone who's sick. And so, you know, it may seem like a kind of a small thing to wash your hand a couple more times a day, say, um, but are you saying that that adds up across the population? It absolutely adds up. And I know we hear that we should wash our hands all the time. And so it becomes uh, kind of a, a background message, but it really does help And recently, I was looking at data from Taiwan and Singapore, Hong Kong, and South Korea, all of which uh, very shortly after the outbreak first became widely recognized in China, implemented and encouraged aggressive social distancing measures. So they they really encouraged people to wash their hands and stay home and uh, keep their distance. And in those places, I see that not just acute respiratory infections, but also diarrheal illness and conjunctivitis, or pink eye, have declined markedly since mid-January or or late January. And so that tells me that it's not just uh, the things we do for people who who we think have COVID, it's not just contact tracing and isolation. It actually is those contact measure, contact. It actually is those social distancing measures, rather, that are having a really powerful impact because uh, we see that in in infectious disease data that are uh, spread similarly as COVID is spread. That's so interesting. So let's talk about conjunctivitis. Like, what kind of declines are they seeing in conjunctivitis or diarrhea, for that matter? Yeah. So um, looking backward in time, there's a fairly um, stable 
level of diarrheal illness and, and in conjunctivitis that you can see in the syndromic surveillance data. And then right about the fourth week of January, which is when those uh, locations started to receive imported cases from China, you do see a pretty big drop in uh, the number of people who were reporting being infected with those those um, diseases. And again, if, if it were just case-based interventions, which are things like contact tracing, things that are very specifically focused on people with COVID, you wouldn't see that reflected in the data for diarrheal illness, uh, stomach flu, or uh, pink eye. And so that really suggests that social distancing measures are having a, a, an impact. And so um, beyond individuals, what they can do, what are the larger things that communities can do that fall under this flatten the curve concept? Yeah, for flatten the curve, communities can encourage um, people whom they lead, people who participate in uh, in activities in communities to stay home where possible. And if that's not possible or practical, to uh, reduce contacts. So if you are a um, gym owner, for example, maybe you can uh, reduce your hours or you can give people workouts that they could do at home so that they don't have to spend time in the gym. Or you could implement really aggressive cleaning measures and make sure that um, your patrons are able to help out with that cleaning. That's the kind of thing that you can do. But another set of recommendations I have is that as our communities are really undergoing these disruptions, there are vulnerable members of our community who normally receive support, who uh, we don't want them to be left behind or to not have the support they need. So I think we should all be thinking about how we can support those vulnerable community members ask them what you can do to help them, see if you can pick up groceries for them, for example, and deliver them so that they don't have to go to the store. Uh, things like that, I, I think, will be really important to make sure that we are prioritizing health and well-being generally and not just transmission. Got it. So it's both what every individual can do, um, what business owners and communities can do, and also what people can do to look out for each other. Now, in some places, some of the social distancing, as they say, measures are have been pretty aggressive. Um, and, you know, we see pictures of the police outside apartment buildings, maybe in different countries. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about whether you think those sorts of things are going to be needed in the United States? I don't recommend mandatory movement restrictions, which we have seen in um, parts of China and parts of Italy, because I think there's an, there's a chance that they would be more disruptive than they would um, helpful. Those kinds of measures, I think, would um, undercut the public's trust in public officials at a time when we really need everybody sort of marching in the same direction and working towards the same goal. And so that's why I encourage individuals and leaders to take the actions that they can for people to voluntarily reduce time in the community and reduce transmission opportunities, because we don't want a scenario where that um, mandatory movement restrictions uh, start to seem like a good option. And what about um, other mandatory things like, you know, the closing the convention center, for example, um, so that they're not huge meetings or, um, you know, closing movie theaters? I'm, I'm just making that up for the, as an example. You know, do you think those things which are certainly less than a mandatory movement restriction, but more than just encouraging people not to go to a big convention, do you think um, that sort of... Uh, place is a place we could land or is advisable? 
I do think so. And I, I say that recognizing that it would be it will be very disruptive to people's lives and to um, some economic situations to make that recommendation. But we have seen from China and from Italy that this outbreak can be very dangerous. And I think that these are extraordinary times and we should uh, make as many moves as we can to reduce transmission opportunities. And I do think that includes closing um, gathering spaces and, and leisure spaces. And what places should be considering that now, something like that? Well, like, what if you're living somewhere where there's not a single case so far that's been recognized? Do you think that all those types of things should be done now? Or would you say that there's like a, you know, dialing it up that can be done if there's a case in a community? How, how do you weigh that? Or do you think this is a uniform recommendation for the country? I think that things are unfolding very quickly in, in the United States. And uh, the number of cases that have been diagnosed is tracking pretty closely with our expanded diagnostic capability, which means, by which I mean, as we have the capability to test more more uh, people, we are finding more cases. And so I think even communities that don't currently have recognized community transmission will face these decisions very soon. And so I think that at the least, they should be considering now what actions they will take and be prepared to implement them. And certainly communities that do already have transmission should move forward with those uh, community level mitigation strategies. Great. I want to ask you maybe at the end here about one of the more controversial areas of the flatten the curve discussion, which has to do with K-12 schools. Um, there are people who have very different views on this question, primarily because uh, on the one hand, people say that if you um, uh, look, kids are, can easily pass viruses around. And so shutting down schools is a good way to reduce the transmission and maybe flatten the curve. On the other hand, other people say that can be so disruptive, not just to the kids, but also to the society's response if the parents can't get to work and they have critical jobs. Um, and you know, how long can you really shut the schools for anyway um, and not really fundamentally undermine whatever you're trying to do in response? Where do you fall on that? And how should people think about that? And how should communities think about that question, which I know many of them are facing now? Yeah, both of those those uh, lines of thought that you just outlined are true. It is true that for pandemic influenza, for example, school closures have been shown to be helpful in some ways, uh, particularly in reducing the maximum number of people who are sick at any one given time. Now, unfortunately, we don't have clear data on how COVID fits in this scenario. We don't have a clear idea of how school closures will impact the uh, trajectory of the epidemic. And it is true that school closures are enormously disruptive for children and for their parents. A lot of families rely on the school system to access critical services like free and reduced meals. And so it is a really gigantic decision. But again, I return to the lessons that we observed in China and Italy and seeing that they have faced really serious challenges there with overwhelmed healthcare systems and excess morbidity and mortality. And I think we should take this opportunity to, uh, to do what we can to make sure that we don't face that outcome. And so for that reason, I do recommend school closures. Not everywhere necessarily at once now, but as something that would be an option for uh, early on if uh, coronavirus starts to spread in the community, would that be fair? Or are you Absolutely. saying- no, no, that's right. And again, I, I say that uh, even communities that aren't having to make this decision today, you likely will have to soon. And so take this time to think through what your priorities are, what your strategies are, how you can support your school community members through those closures, because this is a decision that will be coming. 
Great. One last question. It's a question I get a lot, so I'm interested in how you answer it, which is, look, if I'm a young person, I know that my chance of getting seriously ill is pretty small from this condition. So why should I change my life? Why should I not go traveling or go out, you know, or go to a a big um, event with all my friends? You know, uh, what do you say to that? That's a really important point. It is true that most people who get this virus do fine. We know about 80% of people have mild symptoms or maybe symptoms so mild they hardly even notice it. And that's particularly true for young people. But every single person should be thinking of themselves as a bridge to someone who is more vulnerable. And the way that we protect those people who are at risk of severe illness is by keeping ourselves from getting sick. I think all of us have loved ones in our families or in our, our immediate networks who are older or have underlying health conditions. And again, the best way that we can protect them is by keeping ourselves from getting infected. Well, that's a great answer. I might uh, just play that back for people when people ask me. But in other words, we're not flattening the curve just for ourselves, but for people that we care about. Absolutely. It takes all of us. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking time from all the work that you're doing to talk with me today. Happy to help. Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharpstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamari Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.